And if you would, turn with me now to our sermon text, which comes once again today from the book of Jude. We are nearing the very tail end of our study in Jude. Uh, Jude, of course, only has one chapter, so we note it by its verses. And we will be looking this morning at the final two verses of the body of the letter. And then, Lord willing, our final sermon will be the great ending doxology um, when we get to that. So, if you would open up with me to Jude, verses 22 and 23. So, hear now the word of the Lord. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the book of Jude. Lord, we thank you for the first eight sermons that we've been able to, to walk through for the first 21 verses in Jude. And Lord, we pray this morning as we come to this passage and then move towards the end of this book that you would in every way plant deeply in our hearts and souls all of the truths that we have seen in Jude. Lord, that you would quicken our minds and, and bring to memory the different various teachings and aspects we've seen as we've walked through this book on the days that we need those. And today, as we, in some ways, Lord, you know, come to a crescendo of this book, we do ask that these verses in particular would be planted deeply in our hearts, that the foundation from which they come would be planted deeply in our hearts, and that this morning you would give us, through the power of your Spirit, truly eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word, that it would bear fruit now and throughout the entirety of our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you that we can even pray these things, and we do ask them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we do get started this morning, I think a helpful way to, to start getting our heads around this text is by asking the simple question, what do you do when someone you love has been led astray by false teaching? What do you do when someone you love has been led astray by false teaching? And more specifically to our body as a whole, what do we do? when we see those whom we love within our church beginning to be led astray by false teaching. You see, in many ways, Jude's book is primarily a response to that very question. And in many ways, the essential answer to that question is what we read about in these last two verses from the main body of Jude's letter. So I think actually for anyone who's been a part of this whole study these two verses might be something that, that really sit at the top of your mind when you think back on our time in the book of Jude. But I do want to make sure we understand that Jude, in answering that question, did not immediately go to verses 22 and 23. He actually has done lots of things throughout the book of Jude to lead us to the place we are this morning. He spent quite a while establishing a very solid and important foundation so that true and faithful believers would be able to effectively put into practice the things that we see this morning. You see, if you remember the main command 
from the book of Jude is what we saw back in verse 3. So if anyone asks you in the future, oh, y'all study Jude, what is the book of Jude about? The main command is what we see in verse 3. For us to contend for the faith, to defend the faith. And as we've said many times, that is not something done outside the church where we evangelize. That's something that we do inside the walls of the church. And we then get an extended discussion on what will come into our churches if we are lazy or passive in that task. And that's verses 5 to 16, which we spent four sermons walking through. And it leads Jude to then conclude in verses 17 to 23 with three primary ways that we go about contending for the faith. So if you've been with us, you remember two weeks ago, verses 17 to 19 was step one which is for us to listen to the apostles, and by extension, to the prophets, to listen to the scriptures. That is the first thing we are to do. And then step two, as we saw last week, we must ensure that we are keeping ourselves safely in the love of God, something we can only do inside a gospel-driven community. That's always built on listening to the scriptures, and that actually has to be solidified before we move into our verses today, which is step number three. So simply put, we would say this morning, step three in defending the faith against false teaching is to thoughtfully engage with those who are being affected by it. For us to thoughtfully engage with those being affected by false teaching. Now this morning, I'm going to stray from what I normally do. Maybe I'm moving back into the, the Reformed camp. We will not have two main points today. We will have three main points, okay? But the first two will be a little bit shorter than normal. So three main points this morning. And the reason is because Jude actually lays out for us three levels of people who are affected by false teaching. So a simpler way to put this would be some people inside the community of faith are doubters. Some inside the community of faith are in grave danger. And some, inside the community of faith, have gone completely into false teaching and are showing themselves to be utter fools. And those are the three camps. And our response, as Jude's going to lay out for us this morning, is different to each camp. So we have a point for each of those categories today. Point number one, Christians must employ patient mercy when dealing with doubters. Christians must employ patient mercy when dealing with doubters. Point number two, Christians must employ urgent measures when rescuing those in grave danger. Christians must employ urgent measures when rescuing those in grave danger. And point number three, Christians must employ cautious perseverance when contending with fools. Christians must employ cautious perseverance when contending with fools. So, point number one, Christians must employ patient mercy when dealing with doubters, and we see that in verse 22. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering, or literally to those doubting. Now, I want to give an illustration here that Jay Adams uses in his commentary on Jude, and I found this to be very helpful in getting a big picture of what's going on in these two verses. The essence of these two verses would be like Jude, or even Christ himself, commissioning Christians 
as firefighters, right? So we're being commissioned as a firefighter. And like firefighters, we are arriving on the scene of a massive house that is burning to the ground. And it's actually the destructive false teaching that has set that house on fire. And in this scene, there are three groups of people being outlined. The first group, the doubters, would be those who are standing on the lawn. They're not in the fire yet, but they're enamored by the fire. In fact, in some ways, they can't even tell that the house is on fire. Or if they can tell that it's on fire, they don't see it as something destructive. They see it as something that is perhaps attractive. They don't discern it to be a threat, and yet they're still just standing on the lawn. They've not yet gone into the house. The second group, those in grave danger, would be those who have wandered into the house and don't realize the devastation that is awaiting them at any moment. And then the third group, the utter fools, are ones who have not only gone into the house, they're not only in the fire, but they are, quote, on fire. So as you imagine this scene, you can quickly see how our response to each of those three groups is going to have to be different. So first, in our first point, to the group on the lawn, Christians must employ patient mercy when dealing with doubters. Douglas Moo says, Jude had urged his readers to make sure that our faith is securely established, verses 20 and 21, that was our last sermon, with our spiritual condition secure, we can now reach out to others whose position is not so secure. First, these doubters, we can surmise, are Christians within the church that are being somewhat swayed by false teaching. They are wavering in their commitment to the faith, faith once for all entrusted to the saints. So to say that another way, these are Christians inside the church who are wavering in true biblical teaching. And so I'll give two examples here. We could come up with hundreds of examples to illustrate this, but two that hopefully will be helpful for us to, to get a picture of what a doubter might look like. All right, think of a committed Christian. Maybe it's a new Christian or, or an immature, kind of growing Christian, but one who is not convinced yet about the traditional Christian stance on abortion. Right? They are not able to clearly see yet the destructiveness that abortion causes to the child, to the mother and father, even to society as a whole. So they're having trouble understanding why abortion is actually so wrong, even though they're not yet fully advocating for abortion. Okay, does that make sense? That's, that's a doubter. All right? Or another example that is very common in our world right now, it's the idea of sins being classified in our very modern medical world as diseases. Y'all have heard this. A popular ad on the radio says something to the effect of addiction is not a moral fa failure, but a disease or a disease that cannot be helped. This also is very clear false teaching. False teaching on the nature of sin, on the nature of disease, on the nature of morality, and on the nature of transformation. So the idea of sins being merely a disease actually destroys the message of the gospel. It devastatingly hurts all who have been impacted by it, 
And yet these doubters are ones who have not yet walked into the house. They're just still on the outside looking and trying to figure out what is actually wrong with that thought. And so they're wavering in their commitment to true biblical teaching. Now, this isn't a sermon on those two issues, but I use them as examples of teachings which run contrary to the Scriptures, but which many Christians look at and have trouble seeing why those beliefs are destructive or why they're wrong. And so, hence, the literal translation in our passage is that these people are doubters. They are doubting the truth of Scripture. They're doubting its historic interpretation. They are looking at the house on fire without the ability to see that it is on fire at all. They have a blind spot in their own heart, in their apprehension of true biblical faith, and what seems so clear to many of us does not yet seem so clear to these wavering doubters. And I love what Douglas Moo says about how we approach this group according to Jude. He says it would be easy to shun such people or to lambast them for their doubts. But Jude wants the faithful to show them mercy. Christians themselves have received God's unmerited mercy, so they should display similar mercy to people who are wavering. For mercy is far more likely than harsh rebuke to keep this group within the fold of orthodox faith. So to say that another way, when true Christians find themselves doubting what the apostles and the prophets have communicated to us in the Scriptures, then we are not to shun them or lambast them right away. Instead, we are to see it as weakness or neediness or immature sinfulness within them, and those are things that require mercy. Our ability to lovingly and patiently work with them to help them see the house fire for what it is, a real destructive fire that is bringing devastation to all that it touches. We're actually to assume the best in these people. We are to assume that their doubting is not a result of hard-heartedness, but simply a lack of Christian maturity. And haven't we all been in that place? In fact, I'd be willing to wager that most of us in here are in that place at some spot of our Christian life even right now. So we are to assume that these people are soft-hearted and given enough patient and merciful instruction, they will be able to see the house fire for what it is by showing it to them through the lens of Scripture. After all, this is the type of discipleship that is just normal within the Christian community. We all struggle to see everything with perfect clarity, so the key for this group is for us to display merciful intentionality as we use the Scriptures to give them the correct lens to view whatever issue that they are wavering on or doubting at the moment. So point number one, Christians must employ patient mercy when dealing with doubters. But at some point, don't we find that doubters may actually be in more danger than we had first realized? Maybe we watch them move from doubting into the house, or maybe we thought they were just doubting, but as we work with them, we realize, oh, actually, this is somebody who is in grave danger. And that leads to point number two. Point number two, Christians must employ urgent measures 
when rescuing those in grave danger. We see this in the first part of verse 23. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Okay, we get a picture right here that we have upped the ante at this point, haven't we? The second group would be people who are not yet on fire themselves, but they have wandered into the opening of the home, and they are truly in grave danger. Jay Adams says here, these people have gone too far. There is no use warning. They are in the fire. They are in serious danger. There is no time for gentle, considerate discussion. Jude says, pull them out of the fire. Literally, in the Greek, he says, snatch them. Even if it takes violent action, pull them out of harm's way. You do not stand on ceremony when rescuing someone from a fire. Now, I don't need to say that another way, do I? That's clear. And again, this picture is helpful because you understand that. If someone's standing in the midst of a fire, you don't walk into that house burning to the ground and reason with them. You grab them and you pull them out of the flames. Jude's command for us is to rescue them, to literally snatch them out of the house, whether they like it or not. We are to get them away from the flames before it utterly consumes them. So let me give a couple of examples here as well to just start us thinking. And again, we're at a very high level here. There are so many individual applications to this, but we want to just get the 50,000 foot view here for that's what Jude gives us. So a couple of illustrations. The first one that is immediately applicable to this instruction and something that many American Christian parents are really failing at would be parents who find their child being overcome by unbiblical teachings in some place, right? Whether it's school or friend groups or extracurricular activities. Imagine a child in a school environment or setting, maybe in the public school system where this is running amok, but it could also be in private schools or Christian schools as well. And imagine a child, a parent begins to find their child buying in to some line of deeply devastating and unbiblical theology or teaching. What do you do? You get your child out of that environment. Your child will not like being taken away from friends or teachers, but they may, and they may kick and scream as you drag them into safety, but you cannot think that careful, considerate, and slow pleading with them while they are in a house burning to the ground could be a right response. You do everything you can to rescue your poor child from the burning house that they have found themselves in, and you deal with whatever ramifications or what that may mean for you in your future. Now, likewise, it's not always a school environment, is it? Could be a group of friends or an extracurricular activity. And once again, you have to take on the role of first responder and remove your child from that friend group in every way that you possibly can. Maybe it means they have to quit a sports team because of the immoral philosophies on sexuality promoted by its coach or other players. Maybe it's to pull them out of acting classes or music groups for the same reasons. And you may mourn over your child missing out on fun activities. But in these dire situations, that cannot matter. You are called to snatch them out of these unbiblical environments that they have found themselves in. Now, there will be much more to do than just this. But you don't start with the secondary things while you allow your child to be in a house that is literally burning to the ground. 
You get them out as fast as you can. You see, you are a first responder in these situations, and you must realize that it won't take long for them to be fully consumed by flames if they remain in that house. But lest we think this is only applicable to our children, we need to remember that these things apply to adults as well. In fact, why do adults have trouble doing this with their children? It's because oftentimes we're we linger far too long in a house that is burning to the ground. So in a church community, again, very big picture here, but this is so much of the job of a session. The job of a session regarding church discipline falls into this second category. Discipline is the same root as disciple, discipleship, and discipline is really the specific way of being discipled when you are in grave danger. So let me say that again. Church discipline is really a specific way of a person being discipled when they are in grave danger. A session will come alongside someone who has bought into a false teaching, which is now leading them to pursue ungodly and immoral living. And a session's job is to then snatch them out of that danger, to call them to get out of that house at all costs. What is the call to repent that a session gives? It is the call to say, you are in a house that is burning to the ground. We are calling you to repent, to turn around and come out of that house that is burning to the ground. You see, church discipline, especially the more advanced levels of it, are the very urgent measures that God has given us to snatch a believer in grave danger before they are utterly consumed by flames. Now, people may not like it. They may kick and scream and war against it. But again, we must not try to patiently reason with someone as if they're merely on the lawn when they have clearly placed themselves into a house that is burning to the ground. This is one major reason that our membership vows at the church include giving obedience to the elders when they discern you to be in grave danger. And again, there are hundreds of examples that we could give here. These are just two of them. But the mark of someone in grave danger is not someone who is doubting biblical teaching, but someone who has freely wandered into false teaching and is evidencing itself in the beginnings of some ungodly living that will always accompany it. Unfortunately, however, we do find that people linger in a burning house. And I will say this, if people linger in a burning house because no one told them to leave it, then their sin is still their own, but there is also guilt on the community of faith as a whole if they did not implore that individual to leave. Likewise, we could have some people who linger and their sin is their own, but the community of faith did come alongside and lovingly use whatever patience or urgent measures to try to pull them out. In that case, there would not be guilt on the community of faith, but that sin is still their own. But either way, in either of those scenarios, there will be some that linger in that place, which leads to the final group. Point number three, Christians must employ cautious perseverance when contending with fools. And we see this at the end of verse 23. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. 
Now, in this third category, I want to actually begin by giving our illustration, because I think it helps make sense of the differences between these three groups. Now, in our sermon series, I've tried not to focus only on sexual sins, but that is the primary type of sin that Jude has laid out in this book. The word he uses for immorality in verses 4 to 8, 11 to 12, 16, and 18 all have displayed that. So it's not surprising that actually sexual sins give us a really good lens into seeing these three distinct categories. So imagine on the issue of LGBTQ acceptance, a doubter would be someone who is not sure that the church is correct or that the historic biblical faith is correct to call homosexuality a sin. So we employ patient mercy as we disciple people in that camp. Someone in grave danger would be a person who has determined that it is not a sin at all and has moved squarely into the acceptance of that lifestyle as righteous and holds that as a firm position. With them, we must employ urgent measures. But this final category would be a person who is actually practicing homosexuality as a foundational part of their lifestyle. They are completely bought into it, and they are living that lifestyle out. And this is where we must have cautious perseverance. The second illustration I'll give is the other main illustration that Jude uses in this book, verse 8, having to do with the Spirit revealing things in dreams or visions. So to use that as an example right, would be whether or not the Spirit reveals things in dreams or visions to some select people that must then be binding on other people within the church community. A person who is unsure about the traditional, orthodox, and historic view of the church on this issue would be a doubter, and we employ patient mercy with that camp. Someone who has rejected the orthodox view of the church is a person who is looking for dreams and visions more so than Scripture from other Christians to guide their lives. That is someone in great danger who needs urgent measures. But this final category would be a person who is actually claiming to have had these dreams himself or herself and that those dreams are to be binding on the community of faith that surrounds them. So they're the ones that say, okay, the dreams and visions I have had, we're not so concerned with what the scriptures say, but this is what is leading and guiding you in your life. That would be this third camp. To use Jay Adams' analogy again, these are not people who are merely in the fire. They are on fire. So this is a completely different category. Jude tells us that we still must show this group mercy, and yet we do so with caution hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Or more literally, in Greek, hating their undergarments that are stained. The Greek word here speaks of the most basic level of clothing, an undergarment, that is contaminated by fecal matter. They don't see a problem with that stained garment, but we cannot share that same view. We are to hate the contaminated garment and aim to see it taken off, even as we are cautious not to let it stain our own clothes in the process. So then what do I mean by cautious perseverance with this group? Well, we need to grasp that this group is not one who can be so easily snatched back out of the fire 
before becoming engulfed in the flame. That's because they're already engulfed in the flames. They're already on fire. And a good way to think about this group would be people who cannot be in good standing within a covenant community. This is a person who, having refused to repent, has placed themselves outside the governance, shepherding, and discipline of the church, and they must be clearly shown as such. And of course, the way we would do this in our church is by removing a person from covenant membership in this congregation. If they were a member, then the discipline process must remove them from that membership, and this is as much an effort to restore them, hence the mercy we see in verse 23, and it is to protect the flock, hence the hating of the sins that are contaminating their lives. You all see that? We see in verse 23, both of those. It is mercy, and it is also demonstrating that hating of the sin contaminating their life. Or perhaps you might envision someone who begins to attend worship at Village Prez who is in this situation. Maybe a man or woman who is freely engaging in fornication without being married, even if that is within a committed dating relationship. Those people cannot join the church in that state. That is to still hold out hope of redemption to them, the mercy in our passage, while also protecting the flock, hating the sins that are contaminating their lives. Now that much is clear about the formal aspect of church membership laid out here. But then it raises the next question, and I think this is what Jude is doing. It's why this is so important. What then do we do with that person? Well, unless their sin is something that is predatory in nature, which, by the way, is what the false teachers are guilty of, okay? So this camp is different from the false teachers because the false teachers, as we have, as we have seen, their sin is predatory in nature. They need to be totally taken out of the community, all right? So, but unless their sins are predatory in nature, then we do desire them to attend worship at Village Press, right? It's clear that they are not members in good standing, but we are still to be merciful towards them, hoping that redemption and restoration will come while cautiously guarding ourselves, lest we get entangled in the same sins that they are practicing. You see, we don't want us to become entangled with those sins, but to untangle them from those sins. Moose says the mercy that Jude commands here may then be pity and sorrow for their dreadful condition, but it is more likely that the mercy is exhibited in prayers for them. Even those who have abandoned themselves to the false teaching are not beyond redemption, and Jude wants believers to continue to intercede for them. So to say that another way, we simply acknowledge this third group to be who they are. They are not merely doubters, and they are not in a place where we can take urgent measures to snatch them out before they're engulfed in the flames. But neither are they beyond the hope of redemption and restoration. Thus, our primary mercy is for us to intercede with them in prayer. And on this point, I want to again plug, like I did last week, our Tuesday night Bible study and prayer meeting. There is a growing category of people who have been in or around our church or family members or friends of those within our church that we have been praying for consistently that fall in this group. Y'all, we pray for people in this group every week, 
And on any given week, there are five to ten people who are in this type of camp that we are lifting up in prayer each week. And do you know what we often call people in this third camp? We call them de-churched. We call them de-churched. They are ones who have spent some part of their lives in the church, as Jude is indicating, and yet for whatever reason are right now living outside the communion of the saints. And what does ministry to this category of people require? It requires cautious perseverance. It requires us to be both merciful towards the person with lots of perseverance, because it may well take decades of prayers to see these people restored. And it requires us to detest the sins that have currently engulfed them in flames, being cautious not to be caught on fire as well. So I want to invite everyone in here, if you're looking for a way to begin your ministry to this camp, our prayer meeting is the perfect spot because we are able to pray in this way for many in this camp. And I want to encourage you, if you know people in this camp you would like our church praying for, to reach out and to share it with us and let us continue doing this as part of our Tuesday night Bible study and prayer meeting. So as we conclude our sermon this morning, let me just give one large application and then, and then one really essential statement. The large application here is the mistake Christians often make, and it's a mistake we really do often make. We make this mistake all the time, and it is to mix the methods with the group. Y'all see that? If you wrote the main points down, if you jumbled up the method with the group, those are the mistakes we make. Far too often, we treat doubters with urgent measures, right? It usually turns out unhelpful. But then we'll treat people in grave danger as if they're merely doubters, refusing to employ the urgent measures that are required. And worst of all, we are tempted to allow those in this final category the wrong type of grace. Actually, we try to offer them the grace that these false teachers are guilty of offering back in verse 4. We want them to be in the church to hear the gospel, which is good, but if we allow them to just come right into church membership, then the sins that are impacting them are then ones that can contaminate the life of the church, and it's actually unhelpful to the person, him or herself. So we must make sure that we use wisdom and, and discernment to determine where a person is and to make sure that we work with the appropriate means Jude has given us to do that. Because when we do that, we're actually trusting Jesus to be the one, to be the main worker of grace in their lives. Which leads me to this final essential statement. Brothers and sisters, I have no doubt that there are some in here right now, maybe more than a few, who find yourselves in some way, at some place, in one of these three camps. Maybe you are a doubter when it comes to a particular area of scriptures. Maybe you're a doubter when it comes to this aspect, and people tell you that this house is on fire and that it's devastating, but you're not sure you see it. So you're still in a doubting place in that spot. Or maybe you're someone who has wandered in to the fire. Maybe you are in danger of being engulfed in some ungodly lifestyle. 
Perhaps you're even on a trajectory which will result in you being removed from good standing within the church if it goes unchecked. You may even know that the undergarments you're wearing are stained, but you aren't sure you want to take them off, or if you do, you're not sure how. So let me implore you, the first step towards bringing yourself back into the safety of God's love, as we saw in step two, is to listen to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, as we saw, step one, which is for us to share this with one another, for us to pursue and seek out our church leaders to help us become untangled in whatever way this is. This church, Village Press, has specifically made the statement that we want to be the church to do these hard things, to minister to the de-church, to have cautious perseverance with those who are in this third camp, all the way to simply those who are doubting in some way. So be freed. You are at a church that we have made the explicit statement we want to engage in this ministry. We just need you to reach out to us so that we know how we can begin to do that. You don't need the cheap mercy or cheap grace that false teachers proclaim. You need real and lasting mercy and grace. And that takes hard work, but that is the hard work that this church has committed to do, to bring the real and lasting mercy and grace as you share those things with us. So to anyone in this church then, let me encourage you to embrace this ministry in whatever way you can. And if you realize you haven't quite been in that place of wanting to do this, this ministry, but you find yourself there now, I would encourage you, reach out to me, reach out to your leaders, for there are a lot of ways that we could get different people engaged within the church to do this. But as we come to the end of these, of the, the main body here, I want to encourage everyone this week to go back through the book of Jude and read through it at least one time. See that trajectory from the initial command all the way to the three ways that we live this out, verses 20 or 17 to 23. And if you have questions or thoughts that have come up, thoughtfully engage with the text and reach out to Austin, Jay, myself, someone else in the church with those questions or thoughts that you may have. And Lord willing, we will see a wonderful doxology and praise here as we conclude our sermon, our series, next Sunday. So, with all that said, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a lot of clarity in this short, small book. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be able to embrace this ministry, really what could be our mission statement as a church, Jude, verses 22 and 23. We pray that you would bring people into our church, that we would be able to employ these right measures with, and that those of us in the church who are in varying places, Lord, that you would, in your mercy and grace to our body, begin to, and in mercy and grace to them, to begin to evidence those things, to see your mercy and grace work its way out. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would prepare us then to see the end of this book next week, Lord willing. We ask it all in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.